0: There's kind of a miracle right under our nose every day. I think she wants to wake us up to what's right under our noses every single day, and we just pass it by.
1: Welcome to the Book Society podcast. My guest today is Bill Schultz, who is a poet, the editor of the Hole in the Head Review, and also a divinity school graduate or spiritual studies or something like that.
0: Yeah, I have a master's in theology. So not divinity school. Well, it was a divinity school for some people, but for me, it was a master's in theology.
1: Well, that's pretty cool. There's an alternate universe where I also studied theology. The book that Bill recommended today is Annie Dillard's For the Time Being, which I had never heard of, nor had I ever heard of Annie Dillard. And now I'm a huge fan. She's fantastic. This book is fantastic and beautifully written. I cannot recommend it highly enough to anyone who's listening to this podcast. Please buy it and read it. And also check out Annie's website because she's every bit as esoteric on the hair she is in this book.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. She also writes about writing. So she has a book called Writing Life. But this book, I've not run across it in too many other places or conversations, but it tugs at me, this book, and it
1: has for 15 or so years that I've been reading it over and over and over again. Yeah, it was published in 1999. So it's 22 years old, I guess, but it's kind of timeless. You could read it in 100 years, it would still make as much sense as it does now, maybe even more. And so why did you pick this book? How did you come across it? Just tell us a little bit about your relationship with it.
0: Well, I came across it back when I was in theology school. So I got that degree from the Franciscan School, which was in Berkeley at the time. It was part of this wonderful consortium of theology schools called the Graduate Theological Union. You would weave your way through the big Berkeley campus, the Cal campus, and then make your way up to what is called Holy Hill in Berkeley. And there are I don't know how many different schools. There's a Lutheran school. There's a Episcopal. There's a UU school. There are just some wonderful schools there. So I went to school there. For the first year, I was living in San Francisco. I was 50 years old when I quit my job and went back to school and moved from Maine to California, Maine where I live again. And I had a job working in a warehouse in San Francisco, and I didn't have a car. I learned to love the metro in San Francisco and the BART. One day I was coming back from a class in Berkeley and heading over to the warehouse. So I was waiting for the bus by this bookstore just off Market Street. And this book was on the remainder table. I knew Annie Dillard from other books. I bought it and the first time through it was reading on the bus and on the BART. It's good that way because you can pretty much pick it up at any point. It's one of those books that if you pick it up and read a page, you get something out of it. That was the first time I read it. And it seemed to fit into my life at that time really well. It fit because of the work that I was doing, you know, studying theology and studying with the Franciscans. And this book cracked all of that open into a much larger conversation. And so at the GTU, there's a Franciscan school, there's is Jesuit school, which Tayar was a member of. And Jesuits are known for education. If there was a Catholic high school in your town growing up, it was probably run by Jesuits.
1: There was a Catholic high school in my town growing up. I went there and it was actually run by pedophiles.
0: Uh, well, that's a whole different order. And we're not really thrilled with that order.
1: Sorry, on this podcast, we can't let discussions of Catholicism escape the fact that they were systematically abusing children. They have done many good things, but that's one that you're not going to get out of that one so easily.
0: No, and nor do I want to. Let me say, one of the reasons why the Franciscan school is no longer in Berkeley is in order to pay victims of that abuse from the Franciscans in California and that part of the country, They sold a lot of the property and didn't ask questions. They made a decision early on that this was not going to be a fight. The Franciscan School moved to a mission that they owned in California, and now they moved down to San Diego, and they're part of the University of San Diego. They're working to do the right thing in that situation.
1: This is an interesting situation because... I didn't go into this in your introduction, but Bill and I don't really know each other. Bill was a recommendation from previous podcast guest Marilyn Johnson, who was also an associate editor at Hole in the Head. And she just said, you guys will love each other. He'll be great. And I just took her word for it because I've known her for years. So I don't really know a lot about Bill's personal life. I don't know a lot about Bill's religion. But are you a practicing devout Catholic? I'm not a practicing Catholic. I chose
0: to become Catholic in the year 2000. I actually chose to become Catholic. So. I'm lucky in some ways because I missed all of that stuff. I don't have stories about nuns whacking me with a ruler. I don't have stories about pedophile priests. But here's the thing. So I became Catholic in 2000. My then wife and I left our corporate jobs in 2003, corporate jobs here in Maine, moved to San Francisco. She went to the University of San Francisco, a Jesuit university. I went to the Franciscan school. Three years later, We moved all the way back and I worked for the Bishop of Portland, Maine. I worked for the diocese. Let's just say that I saw how the sausage is made. (laughs) It was wonderful. Look, there's so many wonderful Catholic priests. There's so many wonderful Catholic organizations, hospitals and social service agencies. And there are very dark things in the Catholic world. And there are a lot of people trying to make it right. I left that job 2012, I think. There was a referendum in the state to pass a law allowing gay marriage, which was radical at the time. It sounds kind of silly. I had lived in San Francisco when they opened up City Hall to marriages and there were people lined out of the front door and it was wonderful. And people were celebrating every day. And then I come back and the bishop at the time chose to get in bed with some snakes and fight against passage of the law. I just couldn't any longer. So I left. I'm no longer really practicing. It bothers me, but I find other ways of feeding my spiritual life.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. So the reason that I asked, Bill, was not to put you on the spot, which you explained this all beautifully, is that I had been actively trying to find a person who was sincerely religious to come on the podcast to talk about spiritual things with me. In my circle of people, I don't have that many of them. So I'm glad you're here. And I might be asking you some questions that you didn't expect, for example, about your specific religion. But this book is a perfect vehicle for that. It seemed to me like a work of mysticism. It's almost like Meister Eckhart style. She mentions a lot of famous Jewish scholars, but Thomas Merton does not make an appearance. I don't know if that's deliberate or maybe that's just not her style, but he seems like he would fit right in. Are you familiar with his stuff? I was obsessed with it for
0: years. I read Thomas Merton almost every day. I kind of have a practice that I do every morning. There's a little book of daily readings of his that I read. One of the things I love about the book is that she knocks down those walls pretty quickly between there are Buddhists, there are Hasidic. She knocks down the walls to try to understand what it is she's getting at, which all this time later, I'm still trying to figure out what she was getting at in this book. As I was thinking about it, during quarantining, during COVID, you know, I, like a lot of people, watched a lot of television. (laughs) And I watched a lot of detective shows, British detective shows, right? The detectives always have this wall where they pin up photographs and maps. And it's almost like you need one of those walls to pin up everybody that she talks about and everything that she talks about and have strings like spider webs going from connections from all of these people to begin to understand what it is she's getting at. But then again, that's almost counter to what she's saying. This is pretty simple stuff. If you wake up to it, maybe Merton isn't in there because she's not talking about contemplation. Her big guy is Teyar. He was a soldier in World War I, and other people who served with him talk about how he was such a positive person and survivor. He was all about science and discovery and exploring. I guess that might explain why somebody like Merton isn't in here. I think she's trying to knock down those walls and say, Spirituality isn't all in your head. It isn't all in your heart. It doesn't all come from you. It is in the world. So she goes from a newborn ICU where there are premature babies wrapped in aluminum foil to this Chinese emperor who buried thousands of these clay figures of soldiers to protect him in death after he is buried. So she goes from birth to death and questions what happens in between.
1: One of the things that I found really interesting was that the book is broken into these discrete sections, and like you said, it lends itself to reading in short spurts. There's a bunch of different sections called clouds, and there's a bunch of different sections called birth and encounters. It's like almost these breadcrumbs to some kind of key to the book, right? I got the impression that if you were to study it in the way that it's begging you to study it, that that level of analysis would not actually be rewarded. That's the impression that I get, And that that would be your lesson. This book is what it is. I think that's absolutely right. I've tried to tackle
0: it in that way. And I've tried in the past to tackle it by writing out and trying to do the wall, not obsessively like actually up on the wall, but trying to write out the connections And why? I lose the pleasure of reading it that way. One of the things that I do think she gives us hints of what she is up to. I did over the past week or so. I went through and marked up the hints, as you can see.
1: For people listening, that is a thoroughly tagged book that he is showing us. (laughs) But what she does is
0: occasionally she will address a question to you. It's not just a rhetorical question. She is pointedly asking a question to help you frame what she is writing about. So, for example, and I will just turn at random to one of these little purple tags. This is from a section where she is talking about sheer numbers of death. The book is grounded in this element of dirt and water and vapor and clouds says, for man, maximum excitement is the confrontation of death and the skillful defiance of it by watching others fed to it, Ernest Becker said, in his denial of death. And then she goes on. And here's the question. After talking about numbers of people dying and catastrophes and so on, she stops and says, do you notice here where we are? What Becker calls the rumble of panic underneath everything? Do the dead rumble underneath everything? And will we ourselves churn underfoot or pound? I think I notice no such panic. Hard as I try, unless by chance for moments at a time, I believe I will die. It's those kinds of questions, those kinds of asides that say, I think she's working through these things. She has access to all these travel experiences that she had. She has access to being in Jerusalem on Easter for Orthodox people. She at one point talks about going up to the source of the Jordan River, this little trickle coming out of a rock and standing there and then seeing a blue crab in the water, this trickle coming out of the Jordan River and sharing it with somebody who doesn't speak English, and they both communicate with each other about the wonder of this blue crab in the source of the Jordan River. It's a celebration of that kind of connection or wonder of what the hell is a blue crab doing in the rocks where the source of the Jordan River is? Yeah.
1: It is presented, I think, exactly the way that you just described, that it's her trying to figure something out as we go and we're figuring it out with her. But I wonder how much of that is a device because it reads as if you're just reading her journal. Contrary to what I said before, I think it is kind of deliberately laid out in a certain way for a certain reason. I don't know if all these things are connected in the way that amateur literary scholar, I would want them to be connected. I don't think that they are, but I do think you've got to assume that an author presents something deliberately, right? For me, a great book is the shortest expression of a single idea. It's just a very large idea. When I finished this book, I felt like I understood it, but I still couldn't articulate it because the most efficient articulation of it is the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. I think you're right. And I think she's too good to just kind of be random, right? She's too good a writer. She's too good a thinker for it to be just laid out at random. There is a form here. It is birth. She spends time in a hospital in an obstetrics wing. At one point, she says something like, shouldn't we be lighting candles here, dancing? Because this is where life comes from. This is the hole where lives entered the world. You know, when I read that, it's like, there's kind of a miracle right under our nose every day. And that's what continues to strike me with this book. Throughout the book, I think she wants to wake us up to what's right under our noses every single day, and we just pass it by.
1: I read that totally differently. and I remember that section, and she's in the hospital a few times, but to me, the hospital... The reason we don't light candles there, and I think she was asking this rhetorically, is that it's a horrifying place because while it is a miracle that it's the hole through which life enters the world, having been present for a couple of births recently, I could say that I think what a hospital does is it conceals the horror of birth and the banality of death, both of which are just terrifying to think about. A child coming into the world in the best case scenario is a terrifying bloody mess. And a person leaving the world is usually just kind of a thing that happens. You know, it's a very intense experience for them and maybe for one or two people in the room, but for everyone else in the hospital and for everyone else in the world, it's just a thing that happens.
0: Remember, though, that section where she talks about the nurse washing the babies? It's kind of a conveyor belt where the babies come down, she washes them, and then she swaddles them, moves them along. but. She talks to them while she's doing it. My children are a little bit older these days. My son just turned 44. So I don't want to talk about that. But so you can tell how old I am. I'm much older than 44. I think she takes what you call the horror. I call the banality. She takes that moment and she softens it with that nurse. She writes it so that The nurse comes off as somebody who really understands her job as being more than just a job, that these little creatures that come down this kind of conveyor belt to her are each special and are each individuals. And she talks to them that way. And she talks about the baby's newborns having expressions of wondering what the heck is going on. Remember, she starts off the whole book talking about the standard manual of birth defects. If the mother is in a day and she leaves the next day as hospitals are want to get people out of the hospital now, you're just passing through. But if you go to a NICU day after day after day and you witness the staff in the NICU, the nurses, the doctors, and see how those babies are cared for, I think it becomes different. That's what I took out of that whole section. There's something very special. There's something very holy about the whole environment. Not a word that I toss around, but birth should be a holy moment. Somehow you and your wife created a new human being. That's where we should be celebrating in a different kind of way. But the banality of the system that we've created around it, I believe, is what she's trying to get us to see beyond. For me, the more I read it, the more that's where it takes me. Jesus said to the disciples, one of the last, if not the last thing that he said was, stay awake, stay awake. The disciples all fell asleep in the garden when he told them to stay awake and they fell asleep. And they said, we'll never fall asleep. Well, they did. And we all do. We let the world lull us into a sleep. What I believe she's trying to do is show us the holiness in matter. My high school class celebrated its 50th reunion last summer, but we didn't have an event. So we're having it this year. The class has a Facebook page, of course, and there's a person who keeps a list of all the people in our class who have died, which is kind of a morbid thing. Our class was like 400 people, and now there are a lot of us
1: who are not there. Wake up. Stay awake. While you have time here, stay awake. So on the other side of this, I just started a text message chain or was added to a text message chain with the parents of the preschool class that my son is about to enter into in September. You know, maybe it's 30 people, maybe 15 kids and two parents each, approximately. Maybe it was because I had just finished reading this book. I said, this is going to be a really interesting study in humanity, because we'll probably all be more or less friends for the next year, maybe the next two years. But in 20 or 30 years, this little piece of humanity will just advance out into the world in whatever ways it does. And half of these people statistically will be divorced. Some of them will be dead. Some of them may be married to each other in different configurations than they're in now. It was really interesting to think about that future when I was just entering into this really new and exciting thing. And I think about that stuff all the time. And I don't know if that makes me awake or asleep. (laughs) You know, rather than enjoying it in the moment, I'm thinking about the inevitable demise of this group that I have not even yet really become a part of. (laughs)
0: I'm in my third marriage. I'm 69. This is my third marriage. Did I think when I was in graduate school the first time that we were going to be divorced? No. Did I even think about it? No. At that age, probably not a bad thing that I didn't think about that. But I look back on it now and say it would have been good to be more awake about my own actions back then. I wrote this down. Tayard, he discovered Peking Man which was one of the earliest wonderful finds. In 1929, the church wanted nothing to do with him because what he was doing was science and evolution and they wouldn't let him publish his work. He was a scientist publishing the work that for him was opening up approaches to God, but was shut down by the church. Talking about the writing again and how she writes this. It is the collage-like way that she writes. So she jumps from a description of the NICU, and then she jumps to this Giacometti quote, and then she jumps to Teilhard prayer from September 1923 when he's riding with his pack donkeys into Peking. She copies this out of his journal that he wrote in the morning, this prayer that he wrote. Be pleased yet once again to come down and breathe a soul into the newly formed fragile film of matter with which this day the world is to freshly is to be freshly clothed her progression is what our lives are we can't help but focus on ourselves and what's right around us i think what she is saying is expand your notion of what life on this planet is and has been, and that we are literally walking on the bones and skulls of tens of millions of people who have come before us. It is discovering spirit in matter, which is what she's about. I'm anxious to read it again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I think that's a good place to end this discussion. This has been a fantastic talk and a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad to have met you. Two things. First of all, I want to ask you to just talk a little bit about the Hole in the Head Poetry Review. Review.com, the cover page is a poem that I wrote when I asked Bill to do the show. He sent me a video of someone playing a song that they wrote and asked me if I'd like to do something. And it seemed very clear to me that he was asking me to do some music. <laughs> and so I wrote a poem instead. <laughs> you know, what
0: we do with that is whatever the person wants to do. If you have music that you think would work well for that section of the magazine, go for it. We'll take it.
1: It was a really great experience because I had never published a poem. I mean, I think any writer or even any amateur writer, I've written poetry there's journals with poetry in it around my house, but I'd never thought to publish one. And it was a great experience to write it. I'm proud of the way it came out. So go check it out. It also is one of several great poems in this issue and probably hundreds throughout the history of the review. I highly recommend that. It. It's really interesting stuff. The Hole in the Head Poetry Review is neither pretentious nor challenging in the wrong ways, but it is interesting and beautiful. So everyone should check it out.
0: It's been pretty amazing, Lucas. This is our seventh issue. We have published Richard Blanco who is kind of famous for reading at Obama's second inauguration. Charles Simic, who I studied with at University of New Hampshire a long, long time ago with Marilyn Johnson. We were in the poetry workshop together there. Charlie, who's now in his 80s, is a wonderful poet. He was Poet Laureate of the U.S. and has won Pulitzer surprise, and is just an astounding writer. So we've had people like that. And we also have people who, you know, they're still in college, and they're searching out a place to place their work. We also have wonderful artists, painters, photographers. We have videographers now. It's a digital magazine. So we get all over the world, and literally all over the world. And the cover of this issue is a photograph of this A-frame building, and it says the hot dog house on it. And it's an old roadside hot dog stand, if you believe in serendipity. The issue came out on August 1st, came out on Sunday with this photograph of this place. And on Monday, the longtime owner, Hot Dog Eddie, passed away on Monday. So it was kind of a fit memorial for Hot Dog Eddie.
1: Well, we can dedicate this episode to Hot Dog Eddie, wherever he may be.
0: Absolutely. This is for you, Hot Dog Eddie.
1: (laughs) So let's close with, I ask all the guests to recommend two books, one by a living author and one by a deceased author.
0: Another book that I read every day that was edited by W.H. Auden, Letters of Vincent van Gogh. They're letters specifically talking about the art of his painting. And they're amazing. Man, I can't recommend that enough especially with all this Van Gogh stuff going on, this immersive experiences, just read the book, listen to Van Gogh's own words. The other is The Art of Living. It's a compilation of talks by Joseph Campbell. The woman who compiled this book is living. So The Art of Living and the Auden version of Van Gogh's letters, both wonderful.
1: Bill, thanks so much for being a guest. We'll have to have you back. It seems like you read several books every day. So we'll just pick another one and have you back one of these days.
0: Thank you, Lucas. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: The Book Society podcast, where we talk about interesting books with interesting people, new episodes every Friday, hosted by me, Lucas Cantor, we have a different guest every time. We might bring the same guests back every once in a while, but so far it's been different guest every time. It is edited and produced by Santiago Ramones, who is an awesome dude with his own podcast called Bit Depth, which I highly recommend. So tune in every Friday or, I mean, really, whenever it's a podcast. You can listen to it whenever you want. Thanks for listening. Bye. Not leopards, leopards. Not leopards.
0: No, you still want to run away from a leopard. That goes without saying, if you see a leopard on the street, run.
1: Do not try to heal any leopards. Do not. No,
0: (laughs) call the authorities.
1: Hello, Book Society. It is August 20th, and we've been doing this podcast now for five months. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. Santiago's going to go to Mount Rushmore with his family. I'm going to go to New York. It's what you do. It's summertime. So we're taking a little time off. We'll probably post some bonus episodes between now and the 24th of September when we come back with official interviews and hit it every week. We're actually going to start doing some of them twice a week starting in September. But coming up in September, Angus Fletcher, I just recorded this interview with him. He is a brilliant, brilliant author and a brilliant man. We actually discussed his book, Wonderworks with Judith Dupre, which is an episode you can go back and listen to but he's on the podcast. We're talking about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. I'm also talking to a professor of religion at USC about Irish history. I'm talking with Teocas and Ghost Horse, who is an amazing Lakota radio host and author and just an amazing guy. That's gonna be a really great interview. Also used to be my roommate long, long ago. We're gonna talk to Eric Nussbaum, who's the author of Stealing Home, which was a book we did in the Robert Peterson episode about the Dodgers. So there's a lot of good stuff coming up. Also, Book Society will be going to the Miami Book Fair. So we'll be doing a lot of interviews with authors there. I will be there personally. If you're going to the Miami Book Fair, let me know. We'll connect. If not, then you can be there virtually by listening to this podcast. So we'll talk to you soon. We're going to take a few weeks off, but we're not really taking time off. I'm still recording interviews. I'm still reading books. We're just not going to release them for a few more weeks so we can get caught up. Thanks. It's so great to have you. It's so great to have you listening and keep reading.